Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. The mother of the Rothschild dynasty was born in a dark and crowded ghetto in 1753. For centuries prior to Gutlischnapper's birth, the Jews of Frankfurt had been confined to a strip of land that curved around the edge of the city's eastern fortifications. This was the Judengasse, or Jews' Lane, and Gutler could expect to live her life within its confines. Frankfurt Jews were born among the Judengasse's densely packed houses. They worshipped in its shul and shopped at its market. They studied, worked, and died there. The boundaries of their world had been rigidly fixed by the city council centuries before and were unresponsive to the ghetto's growing population. Over the centuries, with nowhere else to go, the buildings had been forced upwards and cantilevered overhangs had been constructed to maximise living space on the same small footprint. By the time Gutler was old enough to walk along the lane, the slice of sky visible above her would have been no wider than a pair of outstretched arms. There was so little daylight that visitors were struck by how pale the Jews looked. The dense, smoky air and the open sewers made it hard to breathe. During the nightly curfew and on Christian holidays, the gates at the end of the Judengasse were closed and the Jewish population entirely confined. At other times, Jews venturing outside the ghetto were subject to an array of threatening and humiliating regulations. If they visited any of the Gentile streets and markets, Jews were forbidden to touch fruit and vegetables. If anyone, even a child, said, Yud, mach mores, Jew, do your duty, they were obliged to raise their hat and step aside. Unsurprisingly, some chose to remain within the confines of the Judengasse. On the outside of the ghetto gates hung the sign of the Imperial Eagle, symbolising that the Jews lived under the protection of the Holy Roman Emperor. The Jews living in the lane were under no illusions. This was not a refuge but a prison. The houses of the Judengasse were not numbered. Instead, each was named after the shield that hung above the entrance. Red shield, the lion, the lantern, the cat. Gutler's family, the schnappers, lived in the Euler, owl, just inside the ghetto's gates and within earshot of the slaughterhouse. Built into the backyard of an older house, the Euler was not accessed from the street, but through an alley and a yard. Like most houses, it was occupied by more than one family. During Gutler's childhood, the Schnappers had lived at the Euler, along with the Geigers and the Shires. In relative terms, Gutler was fortunate. Since 1179, Christians had been banned from lending money at interest. Some of the city's Jews, who were banned from many other lines of work, ended up establishing their own financial operations banks catering to the needs of Christian and Jewish merchants alike. For several generations, 
the Schnappers had run one such business. When Guttler's father, Wolf Salomon Schnapper, married Bella Gantz in 1752, the Schnapper Bank was doing well enough for the couple to be able to relocate from the ancestral Schnapper home at the Leuchter, Lantern, to the Euler. By the time Bella gave birth to Guttler, their first child, on the 23rd of August, 1753, Wolf Salomon had a number of illustrious clients and his work would eventually earn him a banking pass which allowed him to leave the ghetto at times when the rest of the population was locked inside. None of that meant the Schnapper family was immune to the perils of fire and violence and disease that haunted the lives of all Frankfurt Jews. Guttler's mother Bella died when Guttler was only six. Desperate to keep the broader family and the alliance with his in-laws intact, her father soon arranged a new match with his sister-in-law. Butler's aunt became her stepmother. The Schnappers were not the wealthiest or most prestigious family in the ghetto, but with their small business and a lineage that could be traced to one of the original ghetto families, the Gelhausers, they were highly reputable and more prosperous than most. The oiler doubled up as the headquarters of the Schnappers' operation, so... Guttler spent her early years surrounded by the paraphernalia of a small 18th-century banking business. Wolf expected his first child to master basic literacy and numeracy so that she could help in the family firm. In years to come, he knew such abilities would allow Guttler to aid a future husband in his own work. Many businessmen in the Judengasse depended on their wives as a key source of unpaid labour, and Wolfschnapper must have foreseen that Guttler's competence in the business of a bank would aid her chances of finding a good husband in the ghetto. He could never have imagined the scale and significance of the dynasty that would spring from his first daughter's marriage. At the root of the Rothschild Empire is the figure of a small girl fighting for air in the cramped world of the Frankfurt ghetto. The systems of physical and legal oppression confronted by the young Guttler had deep roots. Even before the physical walls of the ghetto were erected, the city's Jews had been confined by harassment, hostility, legal disabilities and violence. Before the establishment of the ghetto, participation of Jews in the city's financial life meant that the underlying hostility of the Christian population was periodically inflamed by business-related resentments and for centuries periods of fragile tolerance were punctuated by massacres. In the pogrom of 1241, for example, more than three-quarters of the city's Jewish community was killed. A century later, a wave of anti-Jewish violence swept through Europe in the wake of the Black Death, and Christians burnt the Jewish quarter to the ground. As Frankfurt continued to prosper on the world stage, the status of Jews was kept firmly in check. In 1372, a set of laws, the Städtischkeit, began to formalise various forms of discrimination, imposing strict rules and prohibitions on Jewish work, taxes and residential rights. Jews were accorded limited recognition, well short of citizenship. In return, they were encumbered by levies and obligations, including a 2,000 gulden protection tax and a 250 gulden annual rent for their burial ground. 
the forced resettlement of the Jewish community became a serious prospect in 1431 when the Council of Basel, a general council of the Roman Catholic Church, ordered that Jews should only live in designated areas, away from the other houses and places of Christian worship. Frankfurt Christian merchants had other, more pragmatic reasons for wanting to expel their Jewish competitors from the commercial and trading centre of the city. The area chosen for Jewish resettlement was a narrow strip of land curving along the side of the city's eastern fortifications. The Valgraben or Moat. Construction of buildings began in 1460. Two years later, Jews were herded into what became the first legally mandated ghetto in Europe. By 1610, nearly 3,000 people were crowded into 200 houses. New houses were built in the plots between old ones, then in the backyards of existing structures or in the alleyways between them. When those spaces became scarce, non-residential structures such as stables were converted into human dwellings, existing buildings divided to accommodate multiple families, and further stories were added. As buildings were subdivided, so were names. A house known as the Golden Alerva, Golden Lion, for instance, became seven different residences, each with their own sign, among them the Leuven Neck, Lion's Corner, and the Leuven Gruber, Lion's Den. Stagnant water and waste sat in the courtyards and passages, and the remains of the old moat ran with putrid sewage. In the Christian parts of the city, the loathing felt for the Jewish population was shamelessly displayed in public art. One mural on the Brückenturm, an imposing tower that stood sentinel at the riverside entrance to Frankfurt, depicted a group of Jews dressed in traditional rabbinical clothing, devouring the feces of a pig incited by the devil. Another, directly above it, showed a dead infant, his body punctured by stab wounds. The child was the victim of a ritual murder, a fictional practice whereby Jews allegedly slaughtered Christian children to use their blood in unleavened bread. Normally, a tower would be a shower of force to warn off external enemies. In Frankfurt, Jews were considered the enemies within. Against this backdrop of claustrophobia and repression, the community into which Guttler was born had developed its own distinct politics and culture. Frankfurt Jews spoke their own dialect, Judendeutsch, a fusion of idiomatic German and Hebrew, and had their own governors, the Baumeister, who were every bit as susceptible to corruption and overreach as the Christian city authorities. Despite a legal ban on printing presses in the ghetto, the Frankfurt Jews published Hebrew commentaries, secular texts, manuals of religious observance, and the popular ballads that became the soundtrack to Guttler's childhood. The shul and mikveh were the first structures to be rebuilt and repaired after fires swept through the ghetto's narrow streets in 1711 and 1721. A dynasty of rabbis dating back to the 13th century drew scholars from all over the continent to the yeshiva and visitors marvelled at richly decorated stone arches, tall windows and fine copper ornament in the synagogue. Dotted among the communal buildings were wine and beer taverns and coffee houses. 
While the Städtischkeit forbade card games, dice games and roulette, other forms of gambling were allowed, so long as the stakes were no higher than a copper kreuzer. Inevitably, the ghetto had its own hierarchies. There were variations in legal status between those who'd been admitted to the rudimentary rights granted by the Städtischkeit and others such as visiting students and domestic servants. There were divisions in reputation between esteemed figures such as doctors and rabbinic scholars and those such as publicans and night watchmen whose occupations were thought of as lowly and sometimes tainted by an association with criminality. There were divisions in wealth between the destitute and the wealthy merchants or bankers, including those, the so-called court Jews, who held appointments as moneylenders or financiers to rulers of the patchwork territories that made up the Holy Roman Empire. The men of the Frankfurt ghetto, by focusing on their business, their internal politics and their religious observances, had built a world of relative liberty within the severe limits of the Judengasse and the Städtischkeit. As a Jewess, however, Gutlerschnapper lacked access to even this limited freedom. On Friday evenings, after the start of the Shabbat, she was forbidden to walk in the city. Women, it was thought, would gather in groups and bother people, and if she contravened this regulation, she could have been pelted with feces by the community wardens. Only married women could attend synagogue on Shabbat morning, and only women married to men born in the Judengasse were eligible for the Städtischkeit and the rights of residence that it conferred. Marriages had to be made quickly and tactically. Only twelve were permitted each year in the ghetto. In 1770, Gutler was one of the lucky ones. Wolf Schnapper secured his daughter a match. On the 29th of August, after eight days of ritual confinement in her family home, she made her way along the Judengasse to the courtyard of the great synagogue. The man who stood waiting for her had a calm gaze and eyes that reflected his sanity and good sense. He wore the bridegroom's prayer shawl, the talit, over a hooded cloak. She was just 17 years old. Thank you for listening to this clip provided to you by Macmillan Audio. To hear more, look for this title wherever audiobooks are sold.